Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. People, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, our sponsor for this episode of the Skins Podcast, the door, window, and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America. Featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Schuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Schuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA, NFRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. Okay, everybody, I'm here with two of my colleagues, uh, Uta Potgeezer. Uh, Uta is Chair of Heritage and Technology at TU Delft in the Netherlands and Professor of Building Construction and Materials at Detmold School of Architecture and Interior Architecture, Germany. She holds a diploma from TU Berlin and a PhD uh, on the topic of multi-layer glass constructions, energy and construction from TU Dresden, both in Germany. And also joining us today is Angel Ion. Um, Angel is the principal and founder of Ion Studio Architecture and Preservation, holds a professional degree in architecture and a master of science in conservation and rehabilitation of the built heritage from Havana's Higher Polytechnic Institute, as well as a postgraduate certificate in conservation of historic buildings and archaeological sites from Columbia University in New York. Welcome, Uta and, and Angel. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you here. Um, so, uh, so in addition to uh, the credentials I just read, I want you uh, to uh, introduce yourselves. Uh, what you're uh, primarily what you're up to now, uh, but um, uh, the 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 one of the big reasons we're here is you are in addition to everything else, you're both authors, uh, authors of the recently published. Reglazing Modernism, Intervention Strategies for 20th Century Icons, uh, and this is what we're going to be primarily focusing on today, uh, and what we'll be talking about. How did you, how did this project come about? How did you guys meet, and, and how did this, uh, how did this come together, Uta? Yeah, thank you, Mick. Um, I mean, we, I think we, we have to think back for, for quite a, a, some time, uh, which I guess more than 10 years or nearly 10 years. But what brought us together is the Docomomo network. And uh, the Docomomo network, maybe are you familiar with that, is Documentation and Conservation of Modern Movement, which is an international well, organization um, consisting of, of 72 chapters uh, worldwide with international conferences and uh, presenting, I mean, everything to do with 20th century um, architecture. So from a historic point of view, but also from a conservation point of view. 
And uh, well, we have to think about when when it was, but I think it was at the Mexico conference, right? In 2010, yes. Angel, when we met. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, it was at the Dacomomo uh, International Conference in, in Mexico City in 2010. And I had been uh, uh, there and I had uh, presented the work that I had been uh, done at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, where I had the privilege of having been the, the project architect for all the uh, uh, conservation restoration work uh, that was done between 2004 and 2008. And that was before I opened my own studio. But uh, I was presenting the work, uh, the, some of the work that we did at the Guggenheim, specifically the work that we did at the, at the windows, where the, the, there's, in addition to the rotunda, which is the main uh, space uh, that defines the, 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 the core of the museum, there's a secondary uh, building to the north, which is known as the monitor. And on the third and fourth floor, they have these uh, steel frame uh, 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 window walls that um, had a lot of condensation. And after a lot of uh, options and analysis, we ended up uh, uh, removing uh, these original window walls and replacing them with, uh, to my knowledge, which was the first thermally broken steel frame system uh, installed uh, in the US. And I was presenting at the Dacomomo uh, event uh, all the trouble that we went through in terms of the analysis and the various options and, and this painful option uh, that we uh, in, um, executed in terms of removing original historic fabric that was in very good physical condition but had a very uh, terrible performance with a lot of condensation and uh, and presenting in this international context as you know what 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 was that about and and, and the challenges of doing that. And after that, I, I, I had a nice chat with Ulta, who approached me and said that she had uh, similar research she's been doing in other steel frame systems. And um, we, we, we started a, a collaboration at that point and, and, and compared her notes about what she knew, what she had done. And, and, uh, and, I, and over the years, this has kind of evolved into, you know, we have accumulated enough information right now between the case studies that we know of in Europe and, and the U.S. Uh, and, and others that came along as we, we, we started that exchange that really created a body of work that we felt that uh, it would be important to really uh, present in uh, a way to look back as a, as, a, as a way to really move forward in terms of this issue of the, how to intervene in, modern buildings uh, and specifically uh, significant modern buildings where the glaze enclosures have to be uh, altered one way or the other one. And what are the options? Um, I think part of what happened at the time uh, when I was working at the Guggenheim is that the first thing that I did, I, I, I said, oh, I'm going to go to Avery Library and find some book about this type of interventions. And, and, and sure enough, there was none. So um, I think... An opportunity was born. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I was like, my goodness, you know, how is it possible that there's no a book about how to, how, what to do with the window walls and the, and the curtain walls and modern buildings? So a lot of loose articles and things that uh, uh, that have been published in the past, but they were all scattered and they really lack uh, consistency. But more importantly, it, it lacked uh, a, a more clear uh, uh, vision as to the, what's, what's appropriate. Uh, and what are the implications of intervening on this building? So, so, so the, the roots of the book are are, are, are 
10 years passed. When did you, you guys actually start working on the book? When did this manifest as a formal project, I guess? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe mm-hmm. I can maybe I can add to what um, Angel also said before. I mean, mm-hmm. there there were publications done. Also, uh, we could say mainly out of the Docomomo network. So um, there there is an international um, committee within um, also Docomomo, which actually at the moment I'm I'm sharing, which is the International Specialist Committee on on Technology. And uh, within this uh, group um, uh, of the Docomomo network, there have been several dossiers, as they are called, so little booklets which document seminars and so on. But uh, they are um, available through the Docomomo uh, website, and uh, but they are printed, so they are they are not uh, most of them are not available. Um, through PDF, and they date back to the uh, I would say early. 1990s. But of course, these books were at that time um, mostly done as a kind of case studies, which had, uh, let's say, very individual descriptions of the construction itself and um, described uh, very unique um, approaches to the buildings. And uh, there, there, is an issue, there is one volume which uh, represents, I think, even modern curtain walls. I think there is another one which um, uh, works on, on windows. And in general, of course, there is uh, some work on stone facades, on concrete and, and other issues. But what was, uh, what was not done and which, uh, of course, was, let's say, maybe is expected uh, from, from practitioners is that you can really compare the, um, the different approaches. So they were, they were set apart and all of them um, very nice cases, but uh, how to compare compare them, how to learn from them and to come up with what we call approaches. And um, I think after this, uh, coming back to your question, Mick, uh, come after 2010, it, um, it took another two or four years um, where we were, well, in, in touch. And uh, I had some of these European cases um, um, described where, uh, like the Fanella factory in Rotterdam, which was uh, renovated um, by my colleague uh, Vassal de Jong, who is also the f- uh, co-founder of Docomomo. And um, I think so in 2014, we started to think about a book publication. And uh, I think it was at that time uh, when, Angel, you came across a possibility to apply for, for um, a fellowship with uh, the Fitch Foundation, right? Right, 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 right. I mean, we, uh, what happened also during that period between 2010 and 2014-15 is that a number of case studies came about, new, new projects, significant buildings that were being intervened. And uh, I remember the IIT, what uh, uh, Gunny Harbo did at uh, at the IIT and and other buildings internationally. And we we felt that this this was something that it was actually growing. We we had own case studies and own concerns and interests, but it it became very evident uh, to both of us during this time that there were more and more and more uh, case studies that were also coming along. So uh, in 2014, I, I applied to the Mid-Career Preservation uh, Fellowship uh, of the James Martin Fitch uh, Foundation here in New York. Uh, Jim Fitch is uh, considered the, the father of historic preservation in, in, in the U.S., um, the founder of the historic preservation program 
at Columbia um, where I attended, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to be awarded this this um, uh, fellowship in 2015. So at that point, um, I said, well, we we have now some funding where I c- we can actually spend time on, 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 on this. And it was also right about the time when I had opened the office, and, and, and sure enough, when I started the firm, I, I felt like, oh, this is great. Now I have all the time in the world to do whatever I want. And I don't have to, now that I am my own practice and I have more independence, I'm going to have plenty of time. And and now, I know I didn't have any, any time. I think things it became more complicated. But I think it was a it was a good turning point having had those, that the connection having been established through that international network, number one. Number two, having that mutual interest continue to develop over the year and exchanging information between both of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the desire and the willingness to collaborate and to learn from each other was was really there. Um, and and I think that uh, this, the the funding that fellowship was really the the, 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 the primary seeding to to, to do this. So I, at that time, then I, I, I focused more on, into the research. I think we had uh, more clearly out than the need to have a number of case studies that we would analyze in, in a systematically and, and with some level of consistency in which we would inter, uh, um, uh, present uh, some of the different studies. And at the very beginning, our, our intention was just to do something it was more of a comparative analysis between uh, case studies in the U.S. and uh, and, and, and Europe. Uh, it was a little bit of a different focus what we were going for um, um, uh, initially. Uh, two a year and a half later, I I I I I think I did my part in terms of what I have promised the Fitch Foundation that I would do. Uh, with my research, we had uh, almost 100 pages in 11 by 17 of, of text and graphics and, and so on. And, and it became very clear at that point that we have a lot of information. And I, I felt that I had learned tremendously from the various case studies that I had uh, studied and visited. And, uh, and that I felt that it, w- it would be a shame to have this, if this become a research uh, standing in someone's uh, shelf or a PDF in the, on a drive. So we, we, at that point, with all that information at hand, uh, we, we had a conversation that we said, you know what, this, this really had to become a book. I mean, it was always clear for us from the very beginning that that was kind of the intention. But I think that when we put together the, the research uh, after the fish submission, it, it, it was just very clear that we, we had to do it and we couldn't really leave it there. So... Um, mm-hmm. And um, and maybe to add to that, I think uh, so. You you um, started really to to look deeper into what has happened in the United States and and traveled a lot. And at the same time, I mean, I have always been collected some of those case studies um, um, coming from from my background. You you heard about my PhD, which is uh, quite some time ago, and which was not primarily on historic construction, but it was on the the phenomena of of double skin facades and um, having worked myself on one of the the earlier buildings in Germany with a with a double skin that was in the early 90s so it was just after the Norman Foster in Gelsenkirchen one of the well earlier buildings that was like fully glazed a point fixed glazing um, double skin facade and was working with uh, a closed cavity which was really um, I mean with a lot of um, of noise um, issues and at the same time um, 
looking to to manage this kind of system uh, without having overheating problems. And uh, actually, this is what brought me at that time to do my PhD on that issue. Yes, when I was like a young architect, it was one of my my first, my second project actually. And uh, at that time, even uh, in Germany, you know, glass constructions were not regulated. Um, there was not so much experience with uh, even also with the, the double skin facades. And uh, it brought me to the point, oh, you, um, you can really, uh, you still have to learn a lot as a, as a young architect. And uh, with this kind of, um, I mean, uh, complicated and holistic um, thinking um, in terms also of energy efficiency. And... Uh, then um, starting after doing my PhD then in, um, in Dresden uh, Technical University, I came also across of, of course, a lot of buildings that have been uh, renovated in terms of, um, you know, improving uh, energy efficiency, which uh, really started um, onwards from the, from the late 80s, I would say. And, and came across also um, of a lot of buildings um, at that time that were um, actually um, post-war buildings, modern movement buildings. And um, it became interest, um, interesting from, from uh, an architectural point of view. And normally architects, of course, are much more interested in doing new designs. But at that point, it was also interesting to see how how do they approach uh, the the existing um, buildings, and through this research. Um during my PhD, I had collected quite some cases which were also related uh, to heritage. And But only later, then, um, while I went back to university and I, I became a professor, you know, I had time to, to look deeper um, into those projects. And while um, we were then, um, I mean, uh, Angel was working on the Fitch, uh, so I came back to some of these uh, cases and um, started also to, to collect more information about it, um, also to enrich, um, I mean, the few cases uh, we had presented before in the conferences. And I think what was um, what was then uh, for us uh, very interesting was the first discussion about, like, who is going, you know, to publish it, I mean, it was a research report. I mean, what kind of publisher do we do we contact? Would it be a, a U.S. American publisher or um, another one? And finally, since um, I already had some contacts with the Berghäuser as a, as a famous architectural publisher from uh, Switzerland and Germany, uh, we uh, started to speak with them. And I think this was a very lucky uh, coincidence um, since since we met our uh, um, our editor, um, Henriette Müller-Stahl, who is an expert in 20th uh, century um, architecture. And uh, in, in our first talk, or my first talk with her, uh, which was in Berlin, um, she came actually when she saw the, the Fitch report. So we, we, we prepared a, a small um, expose um, for for the publication, actually, what struck her was the kind of uh, table that we had developed, also for the Fitch report, um, which really brought on two pages together the comparison of the buildings related to motivation factors, related to um, this, uh, the the categories before and uh, the interventions we did afterwards. And uh, so that was actually, I think, the point for her to say, yeah, that's something. That we can, that we need uh, in the market for our readers, for our target audience, which are practicing 
architects and um, engineers. And uh, yes, but then there was a whole discussion starting after that, that she said, well, but we have to look at the cases, you know, what are the buildings um, you are comparing? So, um, and uh, although we thought with the Fitch report, we already had like uh, the, the book nearly uh, finished, let's put it like this, <laughs> in terms of cases, that was not the case, actually. Um, so we had to, we were restarting to say, well, but it should be better balanced, you know, if we have. Uh, it should be balanced between uh, United States and Europe, and it should be it should be distributed uh, within Europe, um, in you know north, south, east, west, and um, I think only at that point, which was then I guess in 2016 more or less, mm-hmm. we started to to come up with new cases. So that was the time when we added the Villa Tugentat, uh, the the famous Mies van der Rohe building in in the Czech Republic in Bruno that when we added the Vipari library of Alva Alto um, um, in, in nowadays uh, Russia. And uh, I think even then we looked for UK, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Delaware the Delaware Pavilion by, by Mendelssohn. We should mention that the, the particular focus uh, of your uh, work in this book uh, is um, steel-framed uh, facade assemblies, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. yes. And, you know, what's interesting to reg- to regress just a little bit here, um, you know, you both are um, are focused on, on heritage value and architecture. And these buildings, uh, the uh, buildings of modernism, have only relatively recently been recognized for their heritage value. Am I right about that? Yes. You can say, I mean... Well, I don't know when the first buildings were protected and listed uh, in the United States, um, but I think it only started in the, you know, this is why Docomomo was founded. It was founded in 88, and in 1990, it became like an a, a international, you know, NGO organization. And this was because of, uh, I think, the famous Sonestral um, Sanatorium, for that is in our book, by the way, um, which was... Uh, these buildings were close to to be demolished and i think the first building uh, being um, listed as a world heritage from modern movement was actually the bauhaus now i have to to think about it in in the late 80s i think so let me let me mention that uh, you know we will include um links in the show notes uh to the book uh how the book can be um where the book can where the book is available uh but also uh uh Momo, i think and I, I you know i could be wrong about this um i became uh familiar with Momo when i was doing my own uh facade related research but it's uh, it, it, it seems to me that it's not real well known as an organization in the in the U.S. At least, am I am I right about that? No, you're not. Okay. And of course, we can always do better. But I think I need to I I, I need to uh, put out the good fight for for my my friends and colleagues in Dr. Momo. Of course, we can always do better, and we we we, we have the opportunity to do better. I think what happens is that uh, there, there is, and this is part of the motivation for this 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 book and the research to some extent, right? There, there is a sense of uh, isolation. I think uh, 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 I think there is there's there's, a, there's been for a long time a significant interest 
on documentation and, and advocacy, right, for ma making the point that these modern buildings are significant and therefore they should be preserved, right? In fact, one of the earlier uh, designation of significant modern buildings, at least in New York and in the States, was the Guggenheim Museum when in 1989 they had uh, been proposing the addition by uh, an alteration by uh, Watney Seal and Associates. And it was the youngest building ever to be designated uh, as a landmark, just short of its 30th uh, anniversary, which is uh, the, the, the threshold for uh, designation uh, according to the New City uh, Landmarks Law. Uh, so in '89 it became a, a landmark, and then the commission was actually able to to review the appropriateness of the proposed addition uh, to the original uh, front and right building that had been altered many times. Uh, so so it's not that Dr. Momo is not is not uh, really well known. Is that I think for a very long time uh, a lot of the efforts were uh, geared towards making the point that these buildings are significant and these buildings need to be protected. And they need to be studied and then to be understood. And, and I think that we've progressed over the point where now a lot of these buildings, that the significance and uh, has been to some extent uh, established. And in many cases, although we are, we continue to fight. Dr. Obama continues to fight the the good fight for buildings that are modern buildings that are being demolished uh, as we speak. Uh, many of them throughout the nation. Uh, are, there, but, are there? There's a. There's a. It, it's a member-based organization. It's a members-based organization, uh, uh, and then have a, there's a, a national organization with a variety of uh, chapters. Uh, I belong, How many chapters uh, in the U.S. are there? Uh, boy, you put him in the spot. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, don't know, I but think that I think U.S. has quite a lot of chapters because yeah. you are uh, eight, 10, 11? Uh, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Because you have the the northeast chapter uh, to, to where I usually uh, belong, and there are various uh, regional chapters. Uh, um, uh, in, there's a one in Chicago. There's a in Columbia. I'm sorry, the DC, Florida, Hawaii, Philadelphia, Georgia, uh, Houston, New England, uh, Oregon, California, uh, and so on. Uh, Western Washington. So you have over those kind of chapters uh, and growing nationwide. Uh, and a lot of those chapters were uh, work as about um, as about uh, doing the 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 field work and really understanding you know what are the modern significant modern assets in those regions that need to be protected, documented, and so on. So, so you know when I was doing my my uh, my research, I stumbled across. Dr. Momo, I was not familiar with it uh, at the time that I was doing that research, and I was blown away by the uh, the material I was finding there. I mean, it's a great resource for uh, these kind of buildings, and I, I was finding, you know, uh, research papers on um, on curtain wall systems that were incredibly insightful. And I don't have a, have a heritage background, right? And you know, I'm I'm you know. I'm pathetically ignorant when it comes to the topic. I've had some exposure to it, but you know, unlike you guys, I'm not, I'm not really rooted in, in that uh, in that area. Although I certainly have an appreciation for it. But I was coming across these research papers that were really insightful. Uh, you know, a, a lot more so than than in a lot of respects than, than the the buildings uh, science. Um, you know, uh, research sources that I, I was you know. Uh, you know, plumbing, uh, you know, uh, and, 
I was, uh, and, and, but it made sense, right? I mean, these are the guys that have gone in to uh, repair, restore, fix mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these mm-hmm. early systems. And they're, they're, th- these papers were filled with information about what worked, what didn't work, what the mm-hmm. problems, design problems were, what the, mm-hmm. the materiality problems were. I mean, it was really great stuff. And we will uh, include, you know, for our listeners that aren't uh, as familiar with Dr. Mama, we'll include links to the organization. But it's a great resource for uh, information on these uh, on these older modernist buildings. Yeah, but I also thank want to you. Talk to, yeah, yeah, this is the, great and it's very important. Um, but I wanted to talk to you, if you don't mind, Uto, for a second, to, to do your comment make about you didn't know about it. And I think that that also speaks to a, a larger issue that we have uh, within our professional fields where there is those the silos of information and uh, belonging and organizations and so on, right? Part of, uh, the, yes, there is, there is a, the, Particular type of professional that that uh, gravitates around this, this this type of organization with an interest in history and conservation, preservation, and so on, and that may be a very different type of a professional type than uh, somebody who has an interest in curtain wall design and new construction, sustainability, and so on. So, and that's that's also part of the challenge that we were facing, right? So when we there's a lot of uh, knowledge and experience that is coming from the new construction industry that uh, doesn't really, you can't just translate it directly into the preservation world and vice versa, right? And I think that's part of the challenge that we have on the, in the industry that, that we, and some of the challenges I've also tried to address in, on the book, where given our backgrounds, Uta has in mind in terms of building envelope, uh, heritage, conservation, but also understanding of constructive technology, energy efficiency, and so on, we can speak those languages and 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 and, and, and navigate those those different environments uh, swiftly. Uh, and I think that's the information that is has been missing for a very long time, uh, kind of like a, a mutual understanding between those different fractions of the professions and the market and the industry that, that can speak to each other and that can actually um, uh, 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 appeal to each other. Uh, and I think that's also one of the things that is really exciting about Reglazing Modernism, right? That is, is a technical book, but it's a technical book that's being uh, conceived from a, a heritage conservation perspective with the heritage conservation uh, vocabulary and philosophy embedded within, but also equally strong on, 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 on facts that are technical regarding performance uh, and, and uh, has a kind of interesting, we think, uh, at least a blend of architectural history, um, uh, building technology, uh, history and development, and, uh, and conditions assessments and evaluation of, of building systems and failures, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, statements in terms of the actual interventions on each of the different yeah, I mean, this is this, this is why I was uh, excited about getting you guys on to talk about this, to talk about the book, because you know one of the things that became apparent to me was that um, you know you've got the you know once I sort of stumbled into the preservation community uh, and 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 started to get a little bit involved there, get exposed to it, um, I, you know, it became obvious that. That in this fragmented industry uh, that that we work in, um, you know, this the, notorious for its fragmentation. Uh, you know, you've got mm-hmm. the preservation community, which has its own conferences, its own publications. You know, mm-hmm. and then you've got the building science people, which have their own mm-hmm. things going mm-hmm. on. And you know, it's all these different <laughs> silos. 
Mm-hmm. And these really critical feedback loops that should occur between, you know, the, the, the preservation community and what they've learned in evaluating these buildings as they've aged, mm-hmm. uh, that feedback loop to the people that are doing, uh, you know, um, you know, mm-hmm. facade design, curtain wall design today uh, mm-hmm. are short circuited. They're not happening, you know, and it, it's it's you know, that's that's part of the you know, the reason uh, for, you know, part of the mission of the Facade Tectonics Institute is to, to try and bridge those fragments. So this is a you know, the, it, it's uh, it's beautiful to be it's beautiful work you've done here. And it's great to be, uh, you know, to be exposing our our people to it. Yeah, and uh, Mick, maybe um, what what you are mentioning, I mean, the the, the scattered fields um, of uh, of disciplines, of course, um, we have to say what we also want to, uh, I think, uh, present with this uh, message. Uh, I mean, now we, we our book is is presenting, I mean, icons, really famous buildings, and of course, um, uh, there was a chance to, um, I mean, to maintain them um, uh, widely because they were so famous and they were icons. And as you said, in, in, in many fields, these buildings were quite innovative at their time and they were experimental. So they were really also daring um, certain um, technological, um, of course, also design bias. Um, um, so they, they can uh, present a message. And that's why we are also happy to, to um, in a kind um, of way, document the technology of that time, you know. On the other hand, um, what we also wanted is that these uh, very... Um, these icons and uh, can be a kind of, um, well, maybe role model for the unlisted heritage. And and that's, of course, a much larger issue. And that's, uh, again, also, of course, one of the um, ideas of Dokomomo to say that the cities of, uh, um, I mean, not just in, in the Western world, but in many parts of the world are shaped by uh, what became international style um, later, are shaped by architecture of the 20th century. And even though Though not uh, all of them are listed, they are still uh, type in, uh, as a typology. They are represented. You know, they are they are multiplied, and uh, a large part of our building stock consists out of these buildings. Um, of course, twenties, thirties, but we 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 have uh, some buildings which which are from the nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties, and of course, then the steel was uh, the steel period. Let's put it was finished, and and we move forward to the aluminium uh, period in um, in the facade. Uh, design and construction um, but still uh, what we also want to mention is that um, my, me, me being myself a share of heritage and technology and having two other colleagues in Delft which deal with uh, heritage and values and heritage and design what we think is that actually heritage first of all should not be seen as a threat That's what it is, or often is in in the at least architectural community, but also among um, real estate developers, as well as um, maybe in 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 the field of uh, building science and, and engineering. Because uh, so it's seen as a threat, but we would rather seen it's it's a chance. And if we talk about sustainability and circularity, uh, we think I mean maintaining what is there, you know, I mean, extend the lifetime of a building and of a facade most probably is the best way of, uh, of being sustainable and of being circular. So conservation as also a contribution to circularity and sustainability. And yeah, what this, we... Uh, it, it speaks yeah. very directly to this embodied carbon dialogue, right? 
Right, <laughs> exactly. And um, so that's what we also want to transmit as a message is to, to value what is already there. And of course, we know that uh, many... Um, old heritage or not heritage buildings cannot uh, have the same performance that might be required. And what you see um, in our book and, and where we really categorize the buildings is to look at the motivation factors that are there. And um, I think this was quite also I mean, maybe not. Um, we we were we were expecting it, but of, but still, it it also um, proved that um, in in Europe there was much more motivation, even in in listed buildings, you know, to improve um, energy performance, uh, energy efficiency. Um, so uh, there are quite some interesting uh, projects to see. Even I mean, the famous Bauhaus building in in Dessau um, that was one uh, of the first listed modern modern buildings in Germany, but also uh, World Heritage-wise, um, they really have made this step to say, well, this is a listed building, it is an icon, but still we want to demonstrate that it is possible to make this building energy efficient. And of course, the facade um, was was part of it. And, and that's really interesting if you ever have the chance to go there and, and to look at the facades. Part of it is, is visible in the book, but there are really different approaches within the building itself so part of it is really maintained uh, like uh, the, the the famous workshop you know this big glazed wall um, which was destroyed in world war ii but which was uh, um, replaced um, in in east german times by an aluminum by an aluminum system um, it has been maintained although now in the latest renovations which date back from 2012 um because it is still working, although it has maybe a poor performance. But then in the other areas, the office buildings, uh, the studio buildings, the the um, uh, the, uh, yeah, the 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 dormitory building, they have replaced uh, the 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 windows uh, most likely the um, the window frames in in the dormitory by uh, a, a really innovative system of a Dutch company which has uh, um, a thermally separated steel. Frame frames with the same um let's say visual appearance like a historic system and a triple glazing and in other cases they have kept the thermally non-separated frames but replaced it by a, a quite good uh, double glazing and i think it's to learn of course about this diversity that can be um, um suitable for for the needs that are there but of course we have to say that is maybe not the approach that really industry is is interested in because it's quite individual and it's often a case by case decision and not a one fits all solution right 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 and and also so the, what, yeah go ahead, go ahead no what i wanted to say is that that the the what they also what the book does is that it is it allows us an opportunity to really delve into this topic but also by uh, with the understanding that these, that, that, that these, type, these type of treatments and interventions on historic buildings, modern historic building and modern heritage at large, um, are not just simply opportunities, but also acknowledging that there are certain challenges that are very specific to this type of buildings, right? So going back to the case study of the Guggenheim, where we have 
uh, original historic fabric that was in very good physical condition, but the, the extent of condensation that you have in the winter, when you have a highly humidified um, uh, indoor environment with 50% relative humidity and, uh, and a 10 Fahrenheit outside, out, outdoors, you'll have not only condensation, but frost, and which is a condition that is completely unacceptable in, in a world-class museum. So this issue of this, this building, I think it's, it's important for, for us to be able to cater to a, a, a wider uh, uh, constituency, right? That that the, the the building conservation, historic preservation uh, professionals, the building envelope uh, sustainability professionals, and new construction uh, uh, and building design professionals who may be looking for cues from all these different type of projects as to how can they learn. Um, uh, from each other, and then the only way to really do that is to be able to have a resource that that can have all that information kind of presented in, in a unison uh, but organized uh, fashion. So that's one of the things that we're uh, for us exciting about the book in terms of being able to to provide all of these different intervention approaches and kind of uh, offer uh, 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 a, 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 an extensive uh, uh, plateau of opportunities because one of the issues that uh, the, the market faces is that as these build buildings are becoming more and more and more the subject of renovation, more often than not, due to in, in to a great extent, due to lack of information on the design professionals or a very limited understanding of what could be done with these existing buildings, the default assumption is it's all historic, it's modern, those were experimental. We're going to remove the facade. We're going to replace it, right? And even though that's the re replacement was actually where we ended up doing at that uh, at, the, at the museum, because at the end we ended up concluding that it was the most it was the most appropriate uh, um, intervention to 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 uh, ensure that the building performed could actually retain its original use, which was something that actually had a greater value uh, within the larger um, uh, uh, context of the building's uh, significance. Um, there are many other options uh, other than replacement that I think that are, are out there. And that's one of the things that we like about the book and the way that the case studies are 20 of them are uh, organized according to three main uh, intervention approaches of, and those are for restoration, rehabilitation, and replacement. And either for the restoration. Okay. So, so yeah. let me, let me, let me intervene here. So uh, this is exactly where I wanted to go. So the book is primarily comprised of a comparative assessment of 20 case studies, in-depth mm -hmm. case studies, nine mm -hmm. of which are in North America and 11 in Europe, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. And, uh, and the, um, the organization you were just getting into, uh, can you further describe that you have you describe your categories and why, why those categories, how those make sense? Uh, right. cause that's right. the primary organization, the material, right? Yeah. Right. Right. So we, we started collecting case studies, right. And, 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 and in the, Absence of any kind of uh, uh, guidelines, best practices, uh, industry standards in this this facade renovation field, right? All we had were um, the information on oh, that's what they did over here. Oh, they did that over that over there. This is what this is what they did in this other building. 
And for us, it would be important to not only present relevant case studies, but all, but present case studies that were relevant to certain intervention approaches. I think what, part of what we did was kind of look back and try to come those uh, uh, case studies that we knew of, and but also have been published or had some level of information that we can rely on that, that have been published and try to more than present the case studies themselves. And that's part of what we're doing. Um, no doubt about it. But more than anything, what we wanted to do is just really focus on these intervention strategies, right? And uh, they, the way that we came up with those uh, was just through a really uh, an analysis of these case studies. And it became very clear that there are certain buildings in which, uh, yes, they went through the ultimate replacement of removing the original uh, facade and, and putting, some, putting up something else. But then that replacement, um, there's a lot of uh, options, right? Some of those were replacements with uh, non-thermally broken uh, assemblies, like they replaced in the 1970s, uh, the Bauhaus um, um, uh, um, original curtain wall, uh, or as they did in uh, the Fagus factory, which is actually a building that we didn't even, uh, we had not even started. We, I happened to be in Germany doing my field trip and I wanted to visit the building. And while I'm walking around the building and looking at this uh, gorgeous 1911 and 1925 uh, building by uh, Gropius, I, I look into the windows and the more I look, the more I, I, I ask myself what's going on, only to find out uh, later during the, when I was uh, listening to the audio tour that there had been a series of interventions on the windows and the approach was different on the corners that on the offices and so on. So, but this is a case study where we have replacement in the late 1990s with non-thermally broken uh, uh, steel frames. Um, we have other cases where you have uh, a replacement with single pane glass, other cases where you have uh, uh, with insulated glass units. So, uh, adding detail into replacement and the different options and more importantly, providing our own comments to each of those case studies as to what we see as the appropriateness of those interventions and, uh, and making uh, critical observations as to uh, that, that as to what, what do we think about that and the outcome and, and its appropriateness or, or I think it was an, it's, it's just an equally important part of the book. So we have those case studies that are related to replacement. We, are the, we have the ones that are related to rehabilitation, in which we, uh, we are saying pretty much we are you're, the buildings that are retaining most of the original historic fabric, there's the frames um, and the mullions and so on. But there are some changes, uh, and those changes uh, could be that there are structural reinforcement. Uh, these, because they may be necessary. Like, for instance, at the building that we had at the, the case study in, in San Francisco, um, uh, 1917 uh, curtain wall that had a, a beautiful restoration with a lot of uh, structural reinforcement and addition of brackets and so on, just because the, that curtain wall needed to be uh, braced uh, laterally. Uh, or the case study in Delaware, the Delaware Pavilion in, in, in the UK, 
where uh, there were structural reinforcements that were introduced as part of the intervention of this original steel frame uh, to address deflection and so on. Even though they didn't do that, they, they, they concentrated on the structure as a way to stabilize the frame, and there was not a lot of interest in that particular case on, for instance, changing the glass to IGUs or anything like that. So there was a lot of different uh, ways in which those different interventions can carry out, and, and there's a rational for all all of that and we wanted to learn where uh, the motivation um, factor right exactly um and then the, we had also the more i don't want to say simple but the the, the the more basic interventions that we call restoration where in essence there is a, a repair of the original uh steel frame members uh and uh, localized in-kind replacement of severely corroded uh, members or or parts uh, thereof and uh, in-kind replacement of the glass, but retaining single-pane glass. So in essence, restoration refers to uh, retaining the original steel frames, whether they are thermally broken or they are not, and if they're probably original, most likely they are not, and, and uh, replacing the glass, uh, but retaining, even with new glass, retaining single-pane single, single pane glass. So even if you have uh, an original uh, flawed glass, uh, or plate glass that is re uh, uh, replaced with uh, a piece of laminated or tempered glass, we, we're still calling that restoration because it's still retaining the original design intent in terms of the single pane performance. But there are a, var a variety of also options that are uh, included in the in this category, which is the use of uh, films, uh, surface-mounted films, to add either. Uh, 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 safety protection or uh, glare control, uh, and, and there are issues about that that I think it is important to put on the table and understand uh, to what extent they could be effective or not. And so then being used with different degrees of success. Uh, the TWA case study is one that uh, it's also included uh, um, in, in the book. I signed in in 1962, and I had the opportunity to visit the building before the um, the restoration work began. Uh, there was actually a walkthrough for uh, the, the RFP for uh, uh, that the Port Authority had issued to to uh, intervene on the building uh, curtain walls in preparation for the redevelopment. And at the time, it wasn't even clear what they were planning to do. But just seeing the single pane glass with the, the film and the, the the way that the film had deteriorated and the effect that it had and so on. I mean, it just it's just there's a lot of information that is there that is shown on the on the on the, on the books through photo that really allow you to understand that there are many options for each of these different intervention categories uh, because not everyone is going to have the budget. <laughs> to at the end yeah. of the day, right? Uh, and make that kind of long lasting intervention really expensive yeah. that is gonna that is going to be uh, able to, to take the building, whatever that building will be to the next. I what think about it's- the, yeah. What about the, Uta, what about, yeah. the, like I know these uh, these projects can be, um, like the, especially the, the vernacular, more vernacular projects can be difficult to get the kind of information that you're looking for, uh, you know, to do this kind of comparative analysis. Did you guys, I mean, the projects that you've got in here are more well-known. I think that, you know, they 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 have some uh, recognized historical significance. So I imagine that there's been some pretty helpful documentation that, that was accessible to you guys. I mean, what, did, what were your experiences mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. gathering the information relative to these cases yeah. that you selected? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, happy to answer that, and and maybe just a short uh, addition to uh, to what Angel was explaining about the three intervention categories that we choose. Actually, it was already, of course, a discussion on how do we call them, right? Because like terminology is always a huge issue, and uh, in particular, I mean, even though we decided to do everything in English, uh, we we have already separation or a, dis a difference between American English and British English. We have a difference. Even, I think, in terminology within the U.S. and within uh, the U.K. Um, on how you can call a different uh, interventions in, in the conservation, let's say, um, uh, policies. And it becomes really complicated if you include other languages, even those which are quite, uh, let's say, um, established in the conservation um, field. So which would be Italy and France. Uh, then we have the German, uh, Dutch-speaking uh, uh, region. And in each of parts of the world, you can say this terminology is different. So finally, the restoration, rehabilitation, and replacement um, categories come from uh, the uh, U.S. Ministry of uh, Interior Standards, where we refer to Secretary because we had Interior. to, yeah, Secretary of Interiors, right? Because we had to find a kind of. Um, common definition that we are using and uh, I know from myself I mean collaborating with a, a lot of international people in Delft but also of, of course in Docomomo and in other organizations European Facade Network that these um, expressions if you if you talk about restoration um, so for my Italian colleagues is oh my god this is like what they did with the you know the very ancient uh, approach to, um, to heritage preservation um, uh, in German it's a term uh, where we have a similar term that is mostly used in art, but um, maybe less in um, uh, in the architectural field. So it can also be very confusing. So that was very important for us to, to clarify where these definitions come from. And the same problem, make coming back to your question, actually, you can have when you read the original material, because it's really a mess. You know, if you if you look into even what what is published in um, in scientific papers, um, we're coming back to these backgrounds of the people, the disciplinary background or the, the just the, um, the regional background of people, their educational background, you know. Did they do a conservation, a preservation program? Are they architects? Are they art historians? Or are they construction history specialists? And in each of these uh, fields, you have slightly slight differences in, in, in terminology. I think that might be that might be a bit different from a classical engineering approach. It's maybe not that different from what we know from architecture, you know, in, in the field, because we also use a lot of terminology. But it means also that you really have to critically read the material you are getting, no matter if book books, if uh, original plans and archive material, um, or uh, reports and descriptions that um, have been done by the uh, conservation or preservation or restoration um, architects in that case. And what helped us um, incredibly is, of course, that um, both of us, we have um, a tremendous international network because in most cases, we really, in, in the end, really had to address the people that were dealing with the cases. Um, so you described, Mick, the, the, the material you found through Docomomo. So at least, I would say, five or six of the cases, we were directly in touch with the colleagues, um, which we all know from our network, um, 
to to get in touch with them, to ask them for the original drawings and materials, to verify things we we have seen and to clarify. We we had the descriptions, um, our our texts uh, proofread and approved by by them, and this is why you see also a very long list of acknowledgments that we have in our book for each uh, single case. And uh, actually, we have one maybe interesting thing that um, that we found out. This is related to the building in Paris, the famous Le Corbusier uh, called uh, uh, Cité de Refuge or Salvation Army building, um, because with the latest renovation that happened just uh, like a f four or five years ago, they finally found out that um, that a description in a book that is often cited by an American author uh, who wrote this book in the 1930s, just after visiting the building, was not correct. You know, finally they found out that what he perceived at that time was not what was really built. So, I mean, there is there is no real truth. There is always, um, with each round of description, you have new discoveries that you, that you do about um, a building. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and we also, I think the, the other important thing is that they, we, we felt that it would be important to, to as Uta said, to have to have a set of uh, a reference that we can tie our uh, assessment and our definitions uh, to. So we, we very clearly say, and this is also kind of from a conceptual standpoint and, and preservation philosophy really important, right? There, this, the question has been asked more than once, uh, given the context in which, for instance, what I mentioned about the, the Guggenheim, where we remove original historic fabric in, in perfect his, con, con, condition and replace it, this is the antithesis that we would do for to any historic building within historic traditional historic preservation uh, or or historic preservation practices geared towards traditional buildings you know, from you know, uh, uh, that before the modern era. You would always try to retain original historic fabric. But due to the fact that more often than not, uh, and, uh, uh, one and again it happens that these modern buildings are seeing replacement as an intervention, the question has been asked as to whether the traditional vocabulary or the standard vocabulary of historic preservation uh, applies to these, these type of buildings. Some people have thought, uh, no, it's different. All the folks have said, yes, it's the same. And I think for us, and for me importantly, having been trained and studied all these, 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 these preservation philosophy issues, it was important to, to really uh, acknowledge that preservation philosophy, preservation terminology, the preservation, historic preservation uh, approach. And again, I'm talking about the way it is called in the United States. Uh, elsewhere in Europe and most of the world, they refer that's a lot of what we call historic preservation and conservation, uh, which means something different in the US. In the US. Um, it's, it's something that is really well established and, and I, what what it needs is just to be modified and altered to really uh, be able to, to cater to this particular set of buildings. And that's why part of what we do in the, in, on the book is also define what we're talking about. When we talk about restoration or rehabilitation or replacement in this context of reglacing modernism, we're, we're making, we're kind of like writing down those definitions just so that it's clear what we're talking about. Because as Uta mentioned, uh, and the question you were asking, what what exactly is out there and when can you find out there in terms of the, the literature? It's, and I can tell you, it's very scarce and it's um, and it's very spattered. And, and, and also it's, it's very... 
uh, inaccurate uh, because uh, when you, because of all these different in, 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 in terminologies and so on. So that's one thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to help advance the profession and the preservation yeah, field. Well, we, we certainly need that. Laying, you know, out, but, laying out a groundwork yeah. as to, you know, what do we use, what do we mean, and, and how can we talk about that from with a common terminology that uh, yeah. eventually could help one day to establish best practices and, and, and industry standards, right? Because without that, um, I can tell you that uh, whether the building is highly significant or, or it's not, uh, whether there's a large budget or not, uh, there is no sense of, uh, or there is no incentive on preserving uh, a building or, or or implementing a thoughtful intervention if there is no uh, a set of uh, uh, guidelines or best practices that are really well understood by the uh, the, the professional uh, community uh, and and that can then present those to uh, their clients and so on. So we, we're trying to advance the field by kind Good of laying. We're trying, we're just trying. We're not saying yeah. that we are doing it, but at least that's that's part of the thought, and that's part of the this, thing that's really needed. I'm very, I'm really interested in this in this uh, problem with the terminology. You know, I mean, because this is not limited to uh, you know heritage buildings. This is mm-hmm. common to mm-hmm. uh, you know to to you know conventional dialogue about sustainability and resilience and all mm-hmm. of these things there's mm-hmm. a failure to converge on an accepted definition for a lot of the terms that we use you know and as a consequence we go around talking about these things and as we're talking about them we each have a different thing in mind and and that really limits the you know the the conversation the communication right mm-hmm. the understanding it's, you know, it's really amazing. So I tell you, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the effort that you've made here. It's a beautiful book. I Thank highly you. recommend it, to, you know, to everybody that uh, is interested, especially practitioners. Um, why, don't, why don't we, uh, we're getting close uh, to uh, needing to wrap this up. So uh, why don't you each take a crack at your uh, primary takeaways from this experience uh, for all of us. Uh, share those things uh, with what you learned and, and how we can apply that, um, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah. what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe I might. Maybe I might. I may start. And um, I think, uh, and and that's maybe one aspect I like to highlight as a, also as a you know as a teacher and. Um, um, and somebody that is dealing uh, with education and uh, make I just like to mention that we um, are also collaborating um, with the facade tectonics as the European facade network which is uh, a group of uh, universities mainly that uh, and some uh, industry partners that uh, are dealing with the education in in the field of the building envelope and facade construction and design. We have to say also in existing uh, or historic buildings and also in in, uh, preservation, but of course also in, in new designs. And um, I think what what we can take away for both of these fields, for the historic and preservation field, as well as for the new um, new designs and, and and new constructions, is that we always feel feel that there is um, a lot of knowledge and. Uh, Terminology is one part of it, uh, but also technical knowledge, but um, maybe also knowledge in related to policies, and that we need uh, very skilled planners, um, 
uh, firms, um, um, uh, producers um, and workers. And uh, that we also can, and I think that's what we see is that for the, at least for the field of, um, of preservation, um, we maybe we, we don't have um, uh, that's also on the European market, although we have uh, quite a lot of uh, a different structure of the, let's say the construction and the building sector um, in Europe, I think compared to the US, but also in Europe, we don't have too many any um, firms and um, that are able to do this kind of intervention that have enough knowledge about, uh, let's say, um, the history of uh, our construction materials and the buildings to to really work in the maintenance because of uh, they might be trained on rather um, new products or just uh, certain products and uh, this makes it of course much more difficult also uh, for a planner to um, to to find uh, to find the right people to do the work and what I see from the um, uh, from those uh, uh, firms and uh, projects um, I've seen in Europe, it's that it is also a kind of very special network of uh, planners, engineers, and firms and producers of systems that are collaborating. And you often find them in, in similar constellations working together because um, it's a specified field. So I think our mission is also with this book, but also with our educational programs um, at universities, but also for further education, that we have to bring this systematic knowledge um, um, to the, um, I mean, to the public. Mm -hmm. And where do you, uh, what do you guys think about where you might take this? Is there, I mean, this is this is very focused on steel framed assemblies, um, which you know I think what you commented was these were pretty much done by 1960 or so. Mm -hmm. No, earlier. Earlier. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Later, later on. I'm sorry. Later. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you have, uh, but you have that's basically uh, the aluminum frame systems then uh, dominate at some point, right? And yeah. it, are, is there any, I, I, any, yeah, any plan I think, on I think you're asking us, I think you're asking about part two, which is something that is in the making. And yeah, of course. I mean, we, we had to make a rational decision when we were going through the, the research process, right? The reason why we're concentrating on, on the steel frame assemblies is because those belong to uh, case studies that are primarily of higher significance, uh, also uh, uh, lesser scale and bulk. Uh, and then with, with steel and iron, you have this issue of corrosion that mm -hmm. is very specific to the kind of the decay pattern associated with these uh, glaze enclosures, uh, right? So there's a very specific uh, failure mechanism on these systems that is related to the issue of corrosion. Uh, you have issues also, also the later scale, the lesser scale and bulk and uh, higher significance. And I think that is a group. This is a group of buildings that uh, deserve to be looked at uh, with a very specific focus. Whereas uh, there's a, a larger set of buildings uh, from the post world uh, where you have a larger scale uh, and bulk and uh, also less architectural significance potentially, uh, and lighter uh, systems made predominantly of aluminum and brass where corrosion 
it's still an issue that corrosion in brass and, and aluminum is also completely different than in steel. So, uh, and uh, and then we, where you have with the bulk, the larger scale and bulk and height, uh, all the issues of safety and so on that are more of a challenge, uh, but also coupled with less significance. And, and they are different intervention approaches that we have identified that are right. more suitable and appropriate for that. But we felt that to, to take a first up at this, this big issue and trying to start uh, defining the, the ground world for for identifying intervention approaches and best practices as well, we had to narrow it down. So that's why we only concentrated on the steel. And I think what we're working on and talking about this is the part two, which would be concentrated on the post-war building uh, here, here make an announcement in Utah, so there we go, where, <laughs> where we, we have a, a larger set of buildings with a different set of issues and a different set of challenges that have to tackle and, and deserve to be, to be, uh, to be explored on, on, a, on a slightly different perspective where perhaps this issue of, of uh, uh, significance and, and architectural character it may not be as pressing as uh, all the issues of, for instance, performance, energy conservation, and so on, uh, uh, would be important. So, so that's that's why constant we did what we did. This is only a first step. We're, we're looking at steel. I think that yeah. we're just sort of trying to look at the other things. What is really important and what is what makes this work very difficult is that uh, there is no information out there, right? So people publish that. So when when a new building is built, you have Architectural critics going out there and making a series of evaluations about how that building fits within the larger trajectory of architectural design, history, and, and development, and so on. And when a major intervention is it's it's carried out, sometimes you may have some architectural critics, uh, but criticism. But but what you typically get are just very self uh, congratulating uh, statements by the architects mm-hmm. saying. And this is what we did, and it's great, and so on. So, so there's very, very few architectural criticism uh, for this type of interventions. That's part of what we're trying to do here, to some extent, with our comments. Uh, so, what I think will be really important for for us to 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 continue to really understand what's happening is that these things, when these things happen, people have to publish, and they have to be more publications that are more clear, more straightforward, and stating. Well, you've got. You made a contribution here, and I, yeah, I congratulate you uh, on that. Um, Thank you. So, so you know, part one is great. Uh, I strongly encourage people to, uh, you know, to to take a look at this book. Uh, it's it's a, a wonderful contribution uh, to the field. Uh, we're looking forward to part two. Uh, you know, there's uh, there there's a lot to talk about here. We could keep going. Um, you know, I want it, to, it's been, it, it's been a great dialogue here and I would like to continue this dialogue. I mean, there's things that, uh, I would like to talk about, like you talk about here about, you know, options, uh, uh options, uh, beyond replacement, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially from, uh, from the embodied carbon standpoint, you know, replacement is, should be a last resort, I think. Um, but you know what? What my research has, has uh, shown me uh, is that with our contemporary current wall systems, uh, the problems that you know that were faced in retrofitting the you know the the aluminum frame systems that, that followed uh, are that there is the problem is that there are too few options 
uh, and the and the mm-hmm. options mm-hmm. when you know the options when you explore them end up being more expensive than total replacement. So replacement mm-hmm. becomes mm-hmm. sort of the, the predominant strategy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have time to get into that. But you know, <laughs> what I would like to do right now is invite you back for uh, a future dialogue. You know, if it, if uh, it's before part two is done, then we'll check in on on progress of part two. Uh, but it's been great talking with you too. Really appreciate uh, you showing up for this and, and investing the time in this conversation. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Thanks Thank you. For you having us. Yeah. And we're happy to come back. <laughs> okay. Good. I look forward to that. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Especially, especially now that we made the commitment to the second to part two. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Right. Okay. Right. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you.